Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure my guest is... Arnon Degani. Arnon is currently a fellow at Molat, Center for Renewal of Israeli Democracy, specializing in the history of Zionism, Palestinian nationalism, and Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He recently released the Hebrew podcast series Esket Oslo, examining the Oslo Accords, and is currently working on the English adaptation Still Processing. His doctoral research focused on the integration of Palestinian Arabs into Israeli society from 1948 to 1967, as revealed through daily encounters with Israeli officials. And his upcoming manuscript, titled Our Arabs, will explore this topic in depth. He is a contributor to the scholarly and intellectual debate on if and how the settler-colonialism comparative framework benefits the study of Israel and Palestine. And today, with or not, we're going to have a conversation about settler colonialism explaining its definition and how settler colonialism works in the context of Israel and Palestine. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Arnon, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good. It's a pleasure having you uh, here at the podcast because I really want to talk about this question of settler colonialism, which since the... Uh, events of October 7 has become, you know, sort of a, a buzzword and a lot of people use, you know, the term obviously in relation to Israel. But I had many questions asking me, can you talk about settler colonialism? What is settler colonialism? So how do you define settler colonialism? And uh, perhaps you can tell us something about uh, the differences between other forms of uh, colonialism, sort of, let's call it old-style colonialism, 
protestry. Let's start with understanding that, colon that settler colonialism currently, the most salient way of using it is just a buzzword. Okay, let's just, it is thrown out there as, a sh as shorthand for saying that Israel shouldn't exist. That is, that is if, if we're trying to really get down to understanding what the, what the um, concept means, in everyday parlance, particularly surrounding uh, um, the war right now in Gaza, but also in academia, this is the term people throw around in order to um, signify that they believe that Israel, you know, in its current form, uh, should substantially, essentially not exist. The problem, and it, this is hegemonic in the sense that those that think that it is an excellent framework uh, and those that think this is a completely misguided framework, both of them agree that this is what it means. So I happen to think very differently. I, I, I happen to ascribe as a scholar very different meanings, but I have to at least come to terms with the fact that uh, Whatever I do with the concept, however I understand that the literature that I engage with is not something that is popular, well-known, and perhaps might never be. So let's get, let's get that, uh, let's start with that, with admitting to uh, what the discourse is surrounding this uh, concept. And I, I'll just go with, uh, I'll just go with, uh, I'll tell you my per personal story with the term and maybe that pathway will you know the listeners will 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 get a glimpse of the process I went through and maybe they'll um uh maybe it will it, it will help them uh, uh see my point so back in 20 I was back in 2012 I was working on the uh, Palestine, uh, I was in, at UCLA working on my dissertation that focused on the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel during the first two decades. Now, the, so, some of the listeners may know, some won't. Let's, let's put everyone, let's realign everyone and say that during that time period, Israel placed the majority of the Palestinian Arab citizens, the same ones that are constantly being presented in Hasbara narratives as the ones enjoying equal rights, they put them under martial law, a type of military, it was called the military government, Amim Shalat Tzvayi, Chokum El Askari. And that military, and for me, it was, this is not something I grew up knowing as an Israeli, and most Israelis still don't know that this military government ever existed over the Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. And I was fascinated by this because this military government ended on December 1966, six months before a new military government began in the occupied territories, in Gaza Strip and the West Bank. So the time, the timing here, the consistency here is amazing. 
and it it facilitates an interpretation that there is something about Israel, that there is something about Zionism, an essence that that is conducive to military rule over civilian Arab population. And again, and 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 my my and I, I have memories of the early 2000s in the West Bank. I was a soldier there. And a lot of what I did had to do with movement restrictions, and a lot of what the military government had to do uh, uh, was doing during those first two decades was movement restrictions. So it seemed to me that this is Israel, this is Zionism, and suddenly the early aughts, uh, not aughts, the early 2010s, there's a concept that starts to gain traction. It's called settler colonialism. Oh, so now we have this one term that can explain this essence of Zionism and and uh, and uh, Israel called settler colonialism. Let's just mash it all together. This is what settler colonialism means. It basically means Israelis or Zionists or Jewish Zionists uh, um, mistreating uh, Palestinians. That is what it means. And since Israel has settlers in the West Bank, since Zionism had a lot to do with settlement, yeshuv, like the, the, even the terminology, colonialism, colonialism was always there when it came, uh, when it, uh, 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 in relation to Zionism. But we know that something's a bit different about Zionism and colonialism. So, oh, now we have this new word with, uh, after the hyphen, there's a word settler, seems to fit great, so so it's actually settler colonialism as a way of saying a modification, a type of colonialism, um, but one that, um, one that uh, contains an essence. This is what Zionism is, it's settler colonialism. And for a while it seemed okay, and I was doing my research, but there was one thing I couldn't that didn't fit with the narrative of Zionism being settler colonialism being military regimes over civilian Palestinians. And that thing I couldn't uh, uh, understand was that between 1948 and 1966, the particular military government I was uh, um, working slowly dissipated. So we, we, again, from the Hasbara narratives, we know that the Palestinians got citizenship. From the BDS narrative, we know that there's constant discrimination. But if we put it all together, we see that, you know, if the, if, if the meaning of citizenship meant something in 1948 or 49 or even 50 for the Arabs, because it was a gradual process, in 1966, it means something more. There's, there's more content to the citizenship. There is less daily oppression. Oppression recedes into kind of a more secretive, secret police kind of shabak, the, the, the shin bet, rather than naked um, presence, military presence in the Palestinian Arabs' life, citizens' life. Um, we see that the Palestinian Arab citizens in Israel f welcome these uh, this these alleviations of the military government, right? Um, they are fighting for them, but they are fighting for them 
within the confine while recognizing the state. This is not the 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 struggle against the military government was not a struggle against uh, uh, was not uh, didn't question the their citizenship didn't question the existence of the state. And also, you see, services are gradually improving, never reaching the level of anything close to equality. But still, child mortality goes down, education levels go up. Uh, 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 a measure of integration happens during that time period, and I can't explain it. What are we saying here? That Israel is less Zionist by 1966? Is that Israel is... A little bit less settler colonial, but then it becomes more settler colonial. I've even heard, like, around that uh, the the notion that there was some sort of foresight that there will be another occupation after '67, so we might as well give up this one. Of course, historically that makes no sense. Yes, there were plans of what to do if war starts and we occupy the territories, we will need to start a military regime. But in those, but every every army plans for con contingencies. This was not something that people could predict. So I really, I, I'm trying to understand, okay, I like this term settler colonialism. It sounds, uh, it sounds cool. Why did the first military government dissipate? Right, um, I and and then luckily, as luck would have it, um, another fellow Italian, Lorenzo Veracini, was at uh, was at UCLA at the time. He has written on uh, settler colonialism. He is uh, he was very and and also Patrick Wolf visited, but so I, I got to really understand the literature, not just the buzzword. And after sitting with Lorenzo on a few pints of beers where my mind was a bit more flexible and open to uh, uh, new information and new ways of looking at things, Lorenzo just said, look, Arnon, it's not that uh, I can't uh, impersonate him because he has this uh, Australian-Italian accent that's uh, beyond me. But he said the reason that Israel abolished the military government is not in spite of settler colonialism, it's because settler colonialism. The, the dismantling of the military government is a settler colonial maneuver. And actually erecting it in the first place seemed to, is in contradiction of settler colonial, I would say, uh, trends or, or narratives or uh, objectives. Yeah. Anyways, Military governments are not a good way, are not um, ideal for uh, the consolidation of a settler colonial uh, project. And that was, uh, and that's when, that's, that was my uh, door to really understanding the concept and it's, and the fact that it's really not, it's not a type of colonialism, it's, it's a way of uh it's a set of tools it's a way of understanding it's a prism it's not a manual it is not a it is not something 
it is not like uh, a category you use in zoology or evolutionary sciences to categorize species, different species, and then uh, and then having these fixed traits, right? It is a way of thinking about modes of uh, of uh, uh, European expansion over the globe, and it's a way of thinking that is, I wouldn't say uh, um, um, that in analytic terms, it's almost, it's opposite to colonialism. Okay, I'm fascinated by this. What do you mean it's opposite? I mean, my understanding of settler colonialism is that there is a project. The project is to settle the land and to colonize it in some form, whether through uh, uh, increasing the population, whether through uh, inhabiting the lands or, you know, changing the state of the lands uh, from whatever, agricultural to industrial or whatever. So I I'm curious about this point. So essentially what, uh, um, what all these categories really don't exist in real life, right? There's no, I mean, all we have to, the, the only thing um, that I would say would be the yardstick from which to judge a concept, right? Is to see if it helps us understand certain things, if it facilitates an understanding. So my, so it, for me, it's, it was very helpful um, to understand that some, so colonialism and settler colonialism, you know, on the face of things, there's certain commonalities. You know, you have people coming from one part of the world to another part of the world. So you have that in common. Those people that come from one part of the world to another part of the world aren't doing it in order to immigrate, right? Colonial conquerors and settler colonialists are not there to join the native society by any means. So you have these commonalities. But then, but then a, a way to distinguish these two um, uh, uh, formations, historical formations, is to always ask who is making a claim for sovereignty. Where is where does sovereignty lay in this movement of people? Because when a colonist leaves Britain or France for Algeria or Britain for Kenya, he carries with him the British crown. He takes with him British sovereignty and places it over a new land, right? In the ideal type form of colonialism. In the ideal type form of settler colonialism, the settler leaves a certain metropole, a certain area, not necessarily even a metropole, and carries with him or her a new type of sovereignty. The movement is sovereign. What, what identifies this person leaving 
this group leaving, is the idea that they are leaving and reaching another place. And they are, uh, uh, in the ideal type, doing this in the name of a new sovereignty. Now, of course, these things, uh, uh, again, colonialism and settler colonialism should be understood as analytic categories, not as not as uh, a way to make uh, uh, genetic, almost genetic categorizations of historical phenomenon. So in as much as a close relationship is kept with the metropole, then you have a colonialism, right? Then, then, but in as much as there's this, there's sense of distinguishment, of separation, of we, we, uh, um, we left you guys because we want to start something new, then I think you could say it's more settler colonial. And in reality, these things exist all the time. Uh, Pied Noir in Algeria had a sense that they were distinct to a certain extent from the French. Oh, we're here in the land. We know this land. This land is our... But their entire political agenda was centered around remaining French up until the, the end of the period, right? So you can say that, yes, you have colonialism, you have settler colonialism, but the dominant, the dominant uh, uh, um, structure that at least occupies the minds of the settlers is that, that they belong to the empire. In settler colonialism, I would say like the ideal type form, I would say maybe 7076, when, when we're no longer part of you, you go, you go there. Uh, we, we stay here, we are a new nation. And in reality, there's so much in between. If you look at Canada and Australia, the sovereign is still Britain. These are settler colonial nations, but they still remain somehow affiliated. Um, titularly, the king of England is still, is still the head of the state. So in reality, you have all these things. Now, the understanding that these movements of people from one place to another that are not immigration, that are all about changing the politics, can move on the spectrum from colonialism to settler colonialism is helpful. It's just helpful to look at the different strains, look at the different narratives of Israeli history or any other history for that matter. Why nations that have particular mean streaks on the one hand are on the other hand suddenly become very liberal or, or, or even uh, uh, egalitarian and, um, and really reverse course on how natives are maybe, maybe not, uh, maybe treated is a bit too much, but at least uh, uh, venerated within the culture, for instance. This is why you can have these, this explains all these dynamics that otherwise you would only explain by reverting to some sort of uh, uh, value judgment. Oh, uh, Canadians are nice. <laughs> Americans are nice. Americans or Australians are nice to the Aborigines or anything like that. So that was just uh, a, a, a general kind of, this was my uh, uh, understanding. If uh, let's, so the idea of a completely, uh, 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 a, 
a way of, of understanding the spectrum between colonialism and settler colonialism. First of all, understanding that they exist on opposite sides of a spectrum. And then understanding that the variable in the spectrum is the relationship between the people who leave and the places they just came from. The looser the, the, the association, I would say you're entering more of a settler colonial realm. The more intimate the, the relationship, the more fused the identities are, then it remains colonial. Then it really doesn't matter if it's a settler that's building a house or it's a soldier that's occupying a, a, a country. Uh, you have someone sent by a metropole. So, and this is, and I'll open some parentheses here. This is why when people say that because Zionism doesn't have a distinct metropole, then it can't be settler colonialism. That's why it's very absurd, because what distinguishes settler colonialism, at least from the literature that I use, right, is the fact that there's a disengagement from a metropole. So a metropole isn't a necessary condition for what we would call settler colonialism. The detachment from a metropole is, or, you know, it, it, the, the understanding of we are different than you are has to exist. And I think that exists in Zionism towards diaspora Jews and also towards a surrogate metropole that was sort of like um, uh, the British Empire, the mandate. So if there's different relationships with a metropole in settler colonialism and colonialism, there's also different relationship with the people that you encounter once you get to this new country. The tendency in colonialism is to have um, the relationship between the white, the European, the people, the people that, are coming from, that are coming from the outside, not necessarily European, by the way, you can see that happening in Asia also. You have um, uh, uh, a relationship of exploitation. Basically, you you work the population there, um, you exploit the natural resources by using the labor from there, and whatever you have, depending on the particular uh, uh, commodity you're using, the added value, the, the, the surplus value goes to the metropole. That's why I always tell my students, that's why London looks the way it looks, that, that's why Paris looks the way it looks. It, it's it's just a lot of money that was funneled there from all over the world. That's, uh, so that's the relationship. Now, um, the relationship of, between people that are, by definition, trying to start something new, right? Trying to start something that's detached from where they're going. If, if, if you're less interested in supporting the metropole or any of the place you came from, and you're more focused on starting something new, then the local population might have something, you know, is more of a problem, right? You don't really need them. If you are trying to make a new home for yourself and someone's already in that home, then the local population is a problem. Now, that's not to say that local populations are not a problem for colonists, but at the end of the day, there's only so much 
natives you can kill or decimate under colonialism because if there's no natives, then there's no point of colonialism. If no one is raising the cotton in Egypt, there's no, there's no way of, of extracting capital from Egypt. You need the Egyptian people there. On the other hand, if there's no one to claim this land, the, the, the Midwestern plains or, or the uh, hills of uh, the Carmel, if there's no one there and you can just build a settlement, that's actually convenient. You'd like that. So in the ideal type forms, the relationship between colonist and native is that of an exploitation. It's, it has exploitation. And the relationship between an indigenous person and a settler that's coming to make a new home for himself or herself, then it is elimination. And this is where elimination gets tricky. So I'm, I'm obviously, I'm kind of glib. I, I'm, I've, I'm a scholar. I try to distance myself. But of course, the, the word, what happens behind elimination is genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, uh, um, worst things humanity has ever done to itself and worst things that, uh, that Europeans have perpetrated to other countries. So I'm, I'm not taking light of this, but uh, uh, I am taking a more dispassionate tone. So the, the uh, elimination is, is usually done by uh, re huge reductions of in numbers, right? The clearing, clearing of the land. The West was not open for European settlement uh, uh, voluntarily. You know, this was done by force. Um, and at the same time, the moment every, in every settler colonial case, in tandem with physical ways of displacing or even or even biologically or even committing genocide there's always um um an integrative um an integ an, an integrative uh, uh effort uh to absorb the indigenous population into the settler body now these things happen these thing, these the the absorption integration assimilation they're also frequently very violent the cases of the boarding schools in the US and, and Canada are are good examples of that but they are effective ways of de-indigenizing indigenous people native people um because at the end of the day, what's most important is that settlement goes freely, continues freely. There are ways of achieving that without killing, that make killing unnecessary if the indigenous person really accepts the legitimacy of settlement, is fine with settlement is willing to integrate into the settlers political order that usually happens after a calamity after military defeat but it could happen uh, uh, uh like in the case of new zealand 
the the uh, uh, more peaceful pathways of settler um, consolidation are apparent earlier on in the project. So, um, so for me, I realized that there was something structural about Zionism as soon as as soon as Israelis as soon as Zionists put their uh, uh, put Palestine or Eretz Israel on their eyesight, then this was very bad news for the people who already who were already there. That is for sure. But from the beginning of Zionism, you see visions of Zionism that imagine parity living as equals and um, I would say a democratic regime that would mediate the the inherent tension between a settler and an indigenous person. And you even see that in Herzl's uh, Altneuland. And, and then anti-Zionists would point to Herzl's Altneuland, and, and not Altneuland, but other texts that say the poor people that are there will somehow pay them to leave, right? You see like a, a proto- Nakba brewing there. And both work. Both fit a settler colonial way of, of, of imagining the territory. You're imagining a territory which is less hostile to you. So either it has less indigenous people than it already has, or those indigenous people are perfectly happy of welcoming you as their equal. And it's very important to understand that the integrative, the assimilationist, the egalitarian aspects are constitutive of every settler polity. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, it's not a coincidence that uh, if, um, I think uh, the Tocqueville noticed that. It's not a coincidence that the U.S. has all these uh, uh, democratic institutions that even though we're not we're not accessible to every American, but the institutions existed. I, I don't want to go. I don't want to go too much ahead. Let's let's reverse to what I think and what I think is the most the the best known use of settler colonialism uh, among at least Zionists uh, that hasn't really been understood as such and how such an analysis um, is very, it's just beneficial, right? There's no point in saying that uh, Israel is settler colonialism, Zionism is settler colonialism, full stop, or that it is not settler colonialism, full stop. It's the insights from this field help us understand um, the history. And the first, I would say, the, the best analysis of settler colonialism and Zionism had to be done with a famous BDS anti-Zionist scholar called Zhev Jabotinsky, Vladimir Jabotinsky. And this brings us to a really seminal article that he wrote in 1923, 100 years ago, almost to the day, it was in November, about um, uh, it's really it's really an article that uh, um, talks about the Zionist problem, the, the 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 Zionist problematic of settling in Palestine. What our problem is? What what is our problem basically? And it is written in response to those within the Zionist movement who are seeking some sort of compromise with the Palestinian Arabs. This is 1923. We already have pretty obvious national um, disgruntlement against Zionism. We have the 1920-21. And what Jabotinsky is asking his readers to do is to put aside the entire Zionist narrative of a, of a people returning to their land. Of course, not saying that it's incorrect, not saying that it's uh, immoral, not saying that it's a lie, but he said, let's put that to the side and understand how things are perceived from the po point of view of the Arabs. And there is no way for the Arabs in Palestine to understand what is going on that uh, uh, that would be 
different from the way indigenous people in North America and Latin America in uh, other places have seen the coming of the white man. The relationship that we have with them is the same as that relationship. It's not, doesn't enter the justification of Zionism. It doesn't even enter why Zionism started. So the idea that, that, that many of the Jews, and that, that's another thing that people throw at me, there's no metropole, and that a lot of, uh, uh, and that the Zionists were refugees of Europe. They were not sent by Europe, they were fleeing Europe. And later they were fleeing Morocco and they were fleeing Iraq. And that, that, that means that uh, um, it's not settler colonialism. But Jabotinsky says it really does not, the indigenous person does not care why the Jews are coming here. All he sees is the Jews are coming here and are saying, we want to start a new national project in this land. And in that sense, he nailed it, right? That's the problem. We want to do something that there's just no reason for the indigenous person to accept as, uh, as uh, legitimate. And his conclusion is that any attempt to achieve a compromise of some sort of binational arrangement with the Palestinian Arabs, which at the time was the mainstream Zionist agenda, not because Zionists are particularly kind, but no one could imagine that Israel would become, that the urgency for a full-blown state would arrive, because the Holocaust is still 15, 20 years later. And no one could imagine that in terms of uh, um, uh, military strength, the Jews would be able to wrestle 80 or 78% of the land from the indigenous population and, and start an almost mono-ethnic state. So in the 20s, the ideas are, of course, thinking about the, like, the only way to even envision the viability of a Zionist project is to envision the majority of the population there saying, okay, we're okay with Zionism. We are willing to accept Zionism. So it's almost a coping mechanism with, with, the, with the settler colonial problematic, right? And... All that Jabotinsky does, he's not saying that the end result won't be some sort of parody, but he's saying that the only way to achieve that end result is hard conflict, is, is withstanding, withstanding militarily the challenge that would come from the uh, indigenous population. And that is the Iron Wall, the name of the article and also the metaphor that he uses that that Israel needs to build an iron, that the Zionist movement, the Yeshuv needs to be an iron wall. And only when this iron wall is erected will we start seeing the indigenous people willing to, go, to come to some sort of an agreement. And he reread it lately just because of the 100 years. Um, and, and he also says, and when that time comes, then we'll be able to also compromise on things that are important to us, right? So it's almost that this maximalist vision of right-wing Zionism was also, also part of the Iron Wall. It was a way to achieve 
coexistence with the indigenous people rather than an end, an end of itself. But it, let me ask something yeah. about indigenous people because you answered the questions that I prepared and, you know, so I'm very happy about it. But th there's one point I wanted to ask. So in settler colonialism, indigenous populations uh, often displace face displacement, as you said, and marginalization. So I'm interested in their perspective. So how have indigenous communities, uh, historically, you know, you can certainly focus on the Palestinians, responded to the challenges posed by the settler colonial project? And also perhaps you think you can look at the long-term consequences for these communities. So, this is the so every time people this is again where this 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 framework is so beneficial because if you under if if you're willing uh, to look at the similarities between um, the U.S. and Israel, for instance, and say, oh, these similarities are something that's worth that makes these two societies comparable. Comparison also emphasizes the huge differences, right? So if we assume that the problem that the people that come from the outside is essentially similar, right? Then we can now go deeper and see how that problem played out differently for these different cases. So while in the Zionist case, you see complete, almost complete refusal to accept any notion of uh, uh, um, uh, Jewish patrimony over the land, even if there is tolerance towards Jews as as people who were also indigenous, by the way, but you know are willing to are willing to sort of immigrate into Palestine and and embed themselves within the Ottoman order, which you're much more, you're an expert on, right? If they're, if they're willing to do that, then that, I guess, is fine. But if they're trying to start a new order, some sort of autonomy or even a state, then I would say that there is across-the-board resistance from the indigenous people. And in the U.S., you see tribes much more willing to enter uh, uh, treaties and alliances with the ever-expanding United States against tribes that are that are threatened, that feel threatened, and are threatened, and are unwilling to accept uh, uh, Western expansion, um, settler expansion. And so then you ask, why why the difference, right? If we understand that there is a natural or an understandable resistance of indigenous people to give up their way of life and to share the land out of nowhere with people that just came. If you understand that in both cases, why do we see these phenomenon in the US and the other phenomenon in Zionism? And then you, you will find millions of good explanations, what we need in history, explanations that do not resort to Zionists are bad, uh, Palestinians are, are righteous, or the other way around, right? Then we see that you know, by the time Israel or Zionism colonized, settler colonized Palestine, the people, at least in the urban areas, they have a type of national identity that's Ottoman, right? 
and that can be switched to Arab and then can be switched more easily to Palestinian. But you have some sort of collective identity tying people from Gaza and Haifa and, uh, and um, Jerusalem. You have something like that. Whereas in the 1600s and 1700s and even 1800s, the different uh, 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 native nations were not consolidated under this one unified identity, which made the which made the ability to negotiate with the settlers uh, facilitated that, for instance. And that's just one explanation. There could be many more, right? Uh, I would say that in as much as Zionists were willing to compromise because they came here, they came to Palestine or Eretz Israel in a military disadvantage with a commitment from the world's strongest power, but not an, a complete identity of, not, not, not a, a fused identity. They weren't British citizens who came to Palestine. They came from Poland, most of them. So the lack of military prowess, the fact that there wasn't such an imbalance of power, that is what facilitates Zionists in, uh, oh, let's do a binational state. Why, why let's just share this land. Right. Uh, whereas whereas you see uh, uh, American or British or German, Dutch, uh, Scandinavian or even or even Spanish in the U.S. Uh, settlers less open to that or more opening to begin the interaction with force. Right. So it just helps you. Um, um, find explanations for why history moved this way or that way once you isolate something that is in common, which is a population moving from one part of the world to another. That population has a mythology that is grounded in archaeology about connection to the land. That's not very relevant. That's not irrelevant. It explains motivations, right? But it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, um, it, it doesn't uh, preordain the relationship between settlers and indigenous people. And and then there's another aspect of settler colonialism that I like because the way it's used now, in this again unprofessional way, uh, 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 I would say ignorant, is this that there's a certain manual and we will reach some place, right? So first of all, if, if, if Israel is settler colonial, then the end point, I would say, would look a lot more like, would have to look more like the US and Canada, uh, where you would find the people most willing to use this category as a way to say that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, not realizing that, you know, that, the that the land acknowledgments at the beginning of every lecture also say something about uh, uh, about the legitimacy of the settler project that they belong to. Never mind that. So there's no endpoint. History is uh, always susceptible to contingencies, and things can happen that would that that you know no one is no one is working in Israel with oh we're settler colonists. Uh, uh, this is what we should be doing now. No, things happen. The world is connected. 
the Soviets decide to uh, uh, intervene in a certain way in 1967, and a war starts, right? This wasn't something that the Egyptians or the Israelis or the Palestinians kind of wanted. So things happen, and, and, and new paths are taken. And settler colonialism, again, helps us to explain what we are seeing, not predict. And what we have seen that has happened after 67, for instance, is that Israel, despite being having sharing the same problematic as all these other settler colonial nations, has suddenly taken on policies and discourses and adopted a culture and developed uh, um, um, mentalities that fit not a set, they don't really fit well with the settler colonial um, uh, 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 mindset as we've seen. And in the territories, the one thing you have to ask yourself, right? If there's a successful settler colonial logic, you will see in two points of time the, that between those two points of time, a successful settler colonial project will show a decrease in the population of indigenous people or a decrease in the claim of indigeneity of these, of these indigenous people. So physically, there could be still a, a, a hefty amount of indigenous people, but are these indigenous people view their indigeneity as exclusive, view it in contrast to the indigenous? If it's indigenous people like in New Zealand who are more or less okay with the with the Anglo New Zealanders, then then what then there's no political uh, um, uh, aspect to their indigeneity. Indigeneity in, in general, it's not you know are you going to do a, a DNA uh, that, that that of Jews and you'll see the word Palestine or it's just written in the DNA. You won't see that. So indigeneity is the claim of exclusivity that we were here first. If you have less of that claim of exclusivity, then the, that indigen, indig, indigeneity is superfluous. So between 67 and 2023, do we see the Palestinian problem going away? Do we see the numbers of Palestinians in the territories decreasing substantially? Do we see sympathy with the Palestinian cause decreasing or disappearing? No, we see the opposite. Then if we're using settler colonialism, you have to, then, then we know, oh, something is not doing, we're not going the settler colonial way, that's for sure, right? And luckily, this framework, because it's, because it was even, you know, it was made in contradistinction to colonialism, then we have something else. So we see that the type of relationship between Israel and the territories is that we have uh, uh, exploitation. We have this very important hierarchy in which the colonial hi the, the hierarchy between um, Israel and the and the territories is concrete, and it's it, it's not porous, right? In 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 settler, I mean. In, in uh, 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 indigenous people, in other cases, can can enter the the settler society, but Palestinians can't become Israeli citizens. 
There was a way, by the way, up until the early 2000s, where they would marry an Israeli, usually an Israeli Arab, and they would become citizens. And some of them have become Israeli citizens, like the rest. But on the whole, if you're looking at ideal types, colonialism is defined by this permeability of this impermeability between colonized and colonized. That's the definition. And we see more of that in the way Israel and the territories are, the relationship between the two. And then you have settlers. So that makes the situation kind of, but ask yourself this, are the settlers leaving Israel proper to the territories? What kind of sovereignty or sovereign claim do they have? Is it more that of the people who left Eastern Europe or then the Maghreb and then in Iraq and Iran? Or are the sovereign demands and their affiliations and their national imagination is really about expanding Israel? It's the latter. It's, it's the latter. So in that sense, they are much more colonial than they are settler colonial. Or the way Lorenzo would say, they're more colonial settlers rather than settler colonials. And let me ask something. I have a couple more questions, and you yeah. just mentioned Lorenzo, because uh, I'm familiar with his work, and, and, and I remember that he, he often talks about the fact that uh, he believes that the possibility of a sort of uh, Israeli disengagement, and you know, the idea of an accommodation of a Palestinian-Israeli autonomy uh, within the institution of an Israeli state. Do, do you think this is uh, achievable? given the current situation to a certain autonomy autonomy could look the model of the reservations right where within the reservation you don't even have to be an american citizen within the reservation certain certain state laws don't are not uh, are not valid and and the reservations are managed directly by the uh, federal government uh the office of indian affairs so like it's almost like the the different tribes have almost uh, are are almost a state they almost they relate to the federal government in a way that's similar to how states relate to the federal government and this is how you can say that the native americans or uh, the american indians were absorbed into the settler order right a way of a central government that has that has uh, um, sub subaltern sovereignties of states and tribes. So an arrangement like that could work, you know, in Israel. Um, my own my own uh, dissertation pointed out that by the year sixty seven, Israeliness was that thing that Palestinian Arabs could relate to. So obviously they're not becoming Jewish, right? But a civic identity becomes uh, um, a way for people to imagine uh, the larger group they belong to. And in 1999, Azmi Pshara, so 
Azmi Shah uh, is a uh, uh, an Arab Palestinian a Palestinian Arab citizen of Israel that in 2006-7 was accused of uh, spying for the Hezbollah or or, or maybe uh, um, holding contacts with the Hezbollah agents and uh, he essentially fled the country uh, but he was also a politician who ran for the Knesset was a anyways. Not your typical pro-Zionist uh, Arab-Israeli, not, not a candidate for doing Hasbara. And yet in 1999, he writes an article, he writes an article about how he has to admit that Israeliness is more than just a blue identity card, certain privileges, and, uh, and, uh, and um, financial uh, um, opportunities. That is part of uh, the identity. He says, and he says, if Arabs raised the Israeli flags in the 50s and 60s because they were somewhat afraid of the military government, and that's my period of time, I can say that that existed as a sentiment, then when they do that in 99, and they did it in 99, then it's because that it reflects a, an aspect of their identity, right? And so Israeliness... I dare you to find any society on this globe that does not have um, stratification, inequalities, and things like that. But it is at least cohesive enough for us to uh, imagine that it will go on for a few decades. I don't know if the U.S. is in that condition right now, but uh, 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 you could definitely say that that despite uh, racial tensions that uh, didn't that, that existed throughout the history of the United States, a measure of co cohesion, right? Uh, a cohesion that the civil rights struggle did not uh, question and actually fortified, right? Existed among Arabs in Israel. Now, the problem is, and not the problem, what's, what's so helpful is that this is a way of understanding why things work this way or another way. So if Zionism or Israel doesn't have this set plan, then the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel are not necessarily going one direction. And so once Israel started to invest in a more colonial project in the West Bank and Gaza Strip, a project that's premised on Jewish supremacy, not on civic, not on civic equality, on Jewish supremacy, then once that project is mainstream, it is a lot of resources go to it, a lot of culture is devoted to that, then it would naturally damage the civic, more egalitarian discourses that existed in Israel before and still do exist, but have been kind of corrupted to a certain extent. And one last thing is that in 1967, we see uh, right the, the decision makers at the time, and essentially it's one decision maker, Moshe Dayan, right? He is looking at the territories and he is saying, we want to control these territories. We want to settle several of them. We want to keep several of the territory just for security needs. Um, but we don't want to rule the people directly. So we will make some sort of interesting regime that that is not abusive, that is not, that does not penetrate, that 
will allow them a, sev- uh, a certain autonomy in, in this in a, in a way he's just imagining what a colonial regime is from the 19th century right that you rule by proxies you rule by intermediaries you don't want to you're not trying to change the essence even in Algeria right those Muslims uh, not every Muslim was exposed to French education that was not a requirement and the same way goes for I mean the idea of Israel building an educational system the same one that it built for the citizens of Israel to build that kind of educational system for the residents of the territories no one thought about that but begging understood that begging was all about the territory was all about making those new territories part of Israel fusing it with Israel and so you see that this is not hidden this is I did not have to find some sort of secret uh, uh, meeting between begging and his uh, members of Knesset this was in the platform of the 1969 elections we need to annex the territories and we need to give the uh, Palestinians citizenship or at least a path of citizenship and in 1977 when he becomes prime minister and he goes uh, uh, and, and delivers the speech at the opening of the session he says with the regards to the people in the territory they should have autonomy but they should have the option to choose either Jordanian or Israeli citizenship and if they choose Israeli citizenship they should be able to vote and to be elected just like any other citizen and that doesn't mean that begging was a kind person that doesn't mean begging was a post-zionist but that means that we can categorize his way of thinking the 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 horizon that he was envisioning as something that has happened in every settler colonial case and it's a proven policy it works right and if And Dayan had a more colonial mindset. Not to say that one is good and one is bad, one is immoral or one is moral. They're not particularly good anyone. They're all about how do I consolidate the polity that I am interested in, uh, uh, that, 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 I could, that I identify with. And there are ways of doing that. And there's a settler colonial way and there's a colonial way. And the settler colonial way has different paths. Uh, of and and some of them we find repugnant and and some of them we are seeing played out right now in Gaza but it also has other paths that really are the only way to move forward so I have one last question sure uh you mentioned earlier it's hard to predict the future but I, I really want to bring you there for a minute or two How do you see the future of settler colonialism taking into account also the current events in Israel? I don't want to go further more than a year or so. Do you see this moving into some sort of a full colonization of the West Bank, of Gaza, taking over the land? I mean, as you said, there are different ways this can happen or even change. This is also bor- borrowed from Lorenzo. The year is 2023. All over the globe, there is nothing that resembles classical colonialism other than the West Bank and Israel. The, there are oppressed people in Syria, in China, but the relationship that those states have with those people is that of 
uh, uh, disobedient citizens, not a subpopulation uh, needs to be controlled and exploited, right? I would say Israel is the last bastion, Israel and the territories, not Israel, its existence. But the, the, the relationship with the territories is one of the last examples of a, colon, a full, uh, uh, almost ideal type colonial relationship. Now, in the liberal world, in the post-World War II order that America created, this type of regime proved to be unsustainable. It just doesn't exist except for this one place. In as much as we are thinking that this world order will continue, will survive China and Russia and, and climate change and all that, then any type of solution uh, of in Israel-Palestine uh, is incompatible with colonialism. If the fundamental values of the international community of capitalism are that of civic equality among it within a nation, even though there's always discriminations, but the idea that the world is divided to nation states that appear to be equal to each other, and the people inside those nation states appear to be equal to one another, as long as that's the dominant strain, then there is no other solution, then there is no colonial solution. Colonialism is the non-solution. So that ha this has to end. Since colonialism is not a solution, then settler colonialism will be the only solution. And here there's there's the good scenario, the, the, the bad scenario is that Israel will ethnically cleanse the territories and that that and that the amount uh, and that by the time it is able to do so, um, white flags will be raised, the international community will intervene, and there would be maybe only 200,000 Palestinians in the entire territories, and Israel will give citizenship to all of them, for instance, right? I don't think that's a good scenario, but uh, that's a way for Israel to manage the fact that it is uh, oppressing uh, uh, 5 million people. Have those 5 million people outside of your realm of responsibility or outside of existence. Yeah, killing a lot of them. And this, is, this is very cold and, and ruthless as history is. But there is another settler colonial um, road here. And that has to do with Jews and uh, Zionists and Palestinians in the land of Israel being equal. <laughs> realizing that the entirety of the land belongs to the two people, not one, right? We as Zionists understand that this is, that this is also Palestine, and the Palestinians, to a certain extent, accept to the fact that this is also Eretz Yisrael. And if, that, if we reach a solution that's premised on that, then there are only two scenarios, one state or two states. And, um, and so the one state solution is a settler colonial way forward because it will it assumes that the, the that the Palestinians accept Jewish collective rights in this land. Otherwise it's not a solution. Otherwise it's it's we will defeat you Zionists and those of you who are not willing to live as a minority in this country, you can leave, right? So that's not something that is a solution to one side and Israelis will fight and they will fight hard to avoid that. 
And there's two states in which you're not necessarily, you're not dividing the land 50-50, or you might, but currently the outline isn't that. But you're sharing the land in the most physical way possible. There's a border within the land. And none of these, uh, I would say, the, the, the two-state solution, nothing stays forever, right? None of, so so uh, uh, if there are two states that acknowledge the connection that both nations have to the entirety of the land, this is a good foundation for the lowering of uh, borders eventually, the uh, 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 the eventual uh, uh, free movement of people between these two, and maybe even some sort of sim, sim political relationship where residency in one place is citizenship in another, and vice versa, and maybe even an, an entire Semitic union between Palestinians and Israelis. But all of these paths, one state now or one state in 200 years, all of these paths, are would become a consolidation of settler colonialism those of you who are speaking the listeners who think a binational state is the way to go then you should know you are working within a zionist tradition and also within a settler colonial tradition there we go this was arnon degani who just offered us an amazing and deep discussion about settler colonialism or not thank you so much my pleasure really it was really it was it was a lot of fun and uh, i really appreciate uh, some of the gestures of understanding you made uh, and and your patience with my uh, sometimes slow way of speaking so thanks thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.